0: Every day, we move nearer to reaching the global goals of ending poverty, protecting the planet, and ensuring that all people can live in peace and prosperity by 2030. But how close are we really? Welcome to the SDG Insider, the series that helps bridge the gaps between corporate reporting and the sustainability agenda from the Global Reporting Initiative. We hope to help businesses navigate the 17 sustainable development goals with resources and guidance for taking action. In episode three, we take a closer look at the landscape of labor. In our ever-changing world, the need for due diligence and guidance for businesses on performing and reporting it is constantly growing. We'll hear from three labor experts, Janine Berg, Jason Judd, and Christy Hoffman, who will help simplify some of the complex issues for employers and employees online and in the real world. I'm your host, Ayanda Charlie. Zoom business meetings that connect professionals across the planet. Home offices that give employees more work-life balance. AI tools that can complete mundane tasks instantly, giving us more time for creative and strategic work. These are the benefits of the digital working world. Technology can improve the way we work, learn, and interact with one another. But there's a downside too. Emerging tech and labor practices must be governed properly if we are to address their impacts and potentially damaging consequences. I wondered about how technology is already impacting the workplace. So I asked senior economist from the International Labour Organization, Janine Berg, to explain more. What are your thoughts on the future of work and, and how technology will affect workers in general, especially those whose jobs are less secure?
1: Technology is a tool, and how technology as a tool affects workers really depends on the way it's designed the way it's used the way it's incorporated into the workplace um so most of the discussion on technology and the future of work you know there's been this uh, incredible focus on you know possible you know job loss and and perhaps a future without work and that's that's usually the big discussion but the bigger effect tends to be really about job quality um and when you think about how technology affects affects workers It's really about, you know, to what extent do workers have a say in the design of technology and in its implementation? Um, Are they in a position where they can give feedback to management? If they are in that more secure environment at work, then they are more easily, more likely to be involved in this design and its implementation and in the feedback. Whereas if they don't have you know, very secure contracts, if they don't have a union representing them, it's very difficult for them.
0: In the gig economy, which is a labor market featuring a large portion of short-term contracts or freelance work as opposed to permanent jobs, it makes sense that people might choose to be independent, with the freedom to set their own hours and terms. But some companies have become notorious for classifying their workers as independent contractors and not official employees as a fundamental part of their business model, seemingly to avoid having to give them certain rights. For example, drivers for rideshare service Uber are classified as contractors and as such may lose their jobs without fair process, are not entitled to paid leave and are not subject to restrictions on hours of work. What sets Uber drivers apart is that they do not enjoy the freedoms usually associated with being independent contractors. Drivers can work for around 30 hours before they start making any money for themselves. It come to a stage where I was no longer able to provide for my family. The model actually relies on people that are desperate. And they're grateful they got a job. So, so we'll see people, you know, um, willing to work for £2 an hour, £3 an hour, people will do it. And Uber will say, look, people are willing to work for us and they don't want this uh, worker status or they want to remain independent. But the fact is, it's wrong. Over the years, the classification of drivers has been challenged in countries including New Zealand, South Africa and France. In February 2021, the United Kingdom Supreme Court dismissed Uber's appeal against a landmark employment tribunal ruling that its drivers should be classed as workers with access to the minimum wage and paid holidays. But in March 2023, a state appeals court in the U.S. ruled that app-based ride-hailing and delivery companies like Uber and Lyft could in fact continue to treat their California drivers as independent contractors, allowing the tech giants to bypass laws on worker protections and benefits. I asked Janine to tell me more.
1: You have some workers that are on on fixed term contracts. Uh, Now you've had the rise of gig workers. You have workers who um, might be self-employed, but really actually in a dependent employment relationship. So you have all sorts of different uh, work arrangements. And the problem is that people don't have the same security depending on these employment relations. And they also don't have the same access to voice in the workplace, you know, if they're not being represented by a union. But more importantly, and this is you know a real fundamental problem, is that you have all of these uh, distinctions in what their rights and benefits are that are legally created. I mean, there's no reason why workers in different contractual arrangements uh, should have this, the different rights and benefits. Um, you know, these are these are very much legal constructs that that can be changed.
0: And is the different treatment of platform workers a manifestation of discrimination?
1: It, there's no reason why a platform worker has to be classified, um, you know, and, and you see this actually in, in the court battles that we've been seeing. You have some jurisdictions that are saying, well, these people are actually employees because of, you know, these reasons or some jurisdictions that are saying that, well, they're actually self-employed. But if you if you just think about it more as, you know, these are workers and they need some basic protections regardless of what their contract says, then they could all be on a, on a more favorable playing field. Now, whether that's a manifestation of discrimination, I mean, the problem is that what you're what you're seeing is that a lot of the workers who have who have turned to gig work, many of them are, are migrant workers. They're people who you know couldn't find other opportunities in the labor market, um, maybe lower skilled workers. And so, what happens is that because it tends to be you know certain groups that tend to be in these jobs, they end up being discriminated upon because they're 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 overrepresented in those jobs. The platform work in itself doesn't need to have this discrimination if it had actually the rights and benefits um, of of other employment relationships. So it's a battle that continues to be fought.
0: In the workplace, AI and other algorithms are already adopted in workflows. But the lack of proper research and regulation of AI tools is raising concern. One of the things that I think has really struck me is the cycle of, of development to release seems very, very quick in machine learning and AI. It feels like we're all subjects in some large, uncontrolled experiment. A lot of good might come out of this, but a lot of unintended consequences might come out of this too. In March 2023, nearly 3,000 people, including heavyweights such as Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak and AI pioneer Yoshua Bengio, signed a petition calling for a six-month halt on all AI development, until we can better understand its profound risks to society and humanity, which include anything from flooding the internet with disinformation to automating away jobs. They want to know, have we taken appropriate steps to protect the workplace from harm? I asked Janine to tell me more.
1: The focus on AI has been very much, I mean, I say up until recently with the, with the launch of ChatGBT, it's been very much focused on on consumer and uh, kind of citizens and information in general, and less of a focus on on the world of work. So to a certain extent, I don't know so much, it, I would say that it's been given a pass, but there's been certainly a a lag between the very fast pace of technological development and the regulatory responses so there needs to be you know in the beginning of our conversation we were talking about you know this 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 potential for voice and and, and feedback uh, in the design of of technology and in its implementation all those things are really important for ai as well so there needs to be that space where workers can have a say in in how the ai is being used you know if it's being used to 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 do surveillance for example in the workplace there needs to be Um, some safeguards put in place in the workplace to ensure that lines aren't crossed and that these things don't happen.
0: Janine's current area of focus is on transformations in the world of work, including digital labor platforms and algorithmic management. I wondered what issues she was noticing. Janine, lastly, in the work that you've been doing, what's come out of your research?
1: With some colleagues, we've recently published a study on the effect of generative AI um, in the world of work, looking both at the quantity and the quality, what the potential impacts are. And what we found is that the potential impact is much greater in high-income countries. Um, This is not surprising. This is primarily due to the composition of jobs uh, in high-income countries versus uh, lower-income countries. So, there's more jobs that could be potentially affected by this new technology in higher income countries, but it's also because of constraints in lower income countries to to access the technology either because of uh, electricity uh, broadband connections uh, skills shortages all of these all of these reasons. So we look uh, first at what the potential effects are on the potential automation effects. Um, We see mainly that it's really something that's going to affect clerical tasks. And so as a result, while many jobs will be, the tasks of many jobs will be affected by AI, it doesn't necessarily mean that the jobs would be automated. We don't find huge effects in terms of automation. But what we also discuss um, are really what the potential could be for for job quality. So there's this real concern about, you know, what will be the job quality of the new jobs that are going to be created? And also, how is AI, for those people who remain in their job, how is the AI going to be used? Is it going to lead to more work intensity? Um, Is it going to lead to greater surveillance? Those are all really important questions, and that's why it's really important to have those, you know, that potential for, for workers to have voice and say in the way that technology is being used in the workplace.
0: Switching to the other side of the computer screen, I want to turn my attention to those who now work from home, a trend that has boomed since the pandemic. It seems there are further privacy concerns for employers and employees alike.
1: Stepping up worker tracking, or so-called tattleware or surveillance software, That is, supervisors monitoring daily activities through company issued devices, including keyboard usage, screen time, clicks and more. A recent New York Times investigation found eight of the 10 largest private employers in the U.S. track the productivity metrics of their workers, many of them in real time, leading to many employees being subject to scores, trackers, idle buttons and more, which can lead to lost wages and in some cases even terminations, according to The Times.
0: So laws should distinguish between the data that employers can legitimately collect and that which should not be accessible to the employer. While the digital landscape of work continues to evolve, we can't take our eye off traditional labor issues in areas such as agriculture or the textile industry either. Governance of global supply chains is increasingly under scrutiny. In fact, companies are facing new regulatory challenges, For example, the European Commission has proposed a legislative framework to oblige companies to conduct due diligence to protect the environment and human rights not only in a company's own operations, but also those of their subsidiaries, business partners, suppliers, and anyone in their value chains. Listen to episode 1 of SDG Insider to find out more from experts on that topic. Labour is a big component. Under due diligence policies, companies would have more legal responsibility. I asked Jason Judd, Executive Director at Global Labor Institute at Cornell University, to unpack this in more detail. So Jason, your work includes research on the future of labor governance in global supply chains. What are your thoughts on mandatory due diligence as it relates to labor issues?
2: Well, the alternative to mandatory due diligence is what we've had for 30-odd years. It's private regulation. Companies setting their own standards, collecting their own data, telling their own stories. And private regulation is, by design, opaque, hard to see in, and, and unaccountable. And some firms in, in global supply chains have made big investments in this, but many firms hide or, or just make nominal investments. So in the end, it's, it's voluntary. Firms do it or they don't. And labor abuses in their supply chains are the lead firm may score these as risks, these labor abuses as risks in their supply chains. But they're not treated in the end as the, the lead firm's responsibilities. And there are some, you know, there are some modest checks on this. One of them, probably the most important, is collective bargaining. But there's by unions bargaining directly with the employer. But there's little of that still at the global level. So it's not a it's not an effective check along most most supply chains. Think the apparel industry or or food and a lot of a lot of production and sourcing in supply chains is done in places where where the right to organize the right for workers to to get together and bargain with their employer it's it's not a real thing the, the freedom of association is not legal as in China or it's it's effectively suppressed in places like Bangladesh so in the end we're left with mandatory due diligence those requirements and the and the reporting requirements that go along with them. To us at, at Cornell, the shift to public regulation seems seems inevitable, overdue, and it's it's legal liability for those lead firms for the harms in their supply chain things that are done by their by their suppliers things that the lead firm should know about or or does know about and should be preventing should be fixing. We know the regulation looks serious this time because. You get some some giant firms, some lead firms, calling calling for regulation. They want to level the playing field. Uh, and then you know it's serious because some of these some of these lead firms are lobbying furiously uh, in Brussels and elsewhere uh, to try to limit the scope and impact of the of the new rules.
0: With that, do you think it'll be more challenging for some sectors than others? We do. Uh,
2: agriculture and and food seem especially difficult to us because uh, because there's so much informality in those supply chains and lack of basic protections for, for agricultural workers, for example. Um, we know fishing best at, at Cornell in the food supply chains. And there is literally no controlling authority out there in international waters. Mining seems another obvious candidate.
0: And would you say that the further away you are from the end consumer, the more vulnerable you will be? as a worker.
2: Yes. And commercial fishing is a, a good example of that. The further away the worker or the work the work is, the process is, the greater the risk. But that also elides to two important points. One is that great abuses can be happening next door. I've read a, a whole raft of stories in the UK press about forced labor and, and, and serious labor abuses happening on farms that are you know within spitting distance of the of the tier 1 producer and the retailer so that's one thing and another is the reference to the end consumer or the customer is important because uh, for us that's hardly the place to make a serious stand if you want to combat forced labor for example you need uh, workers need real rules and serious consequences for the for the lead firms not a qr code for shoppers so that they can learn the story of the worker who who picked their apples
0: Looking at history, it's reasonable to assume that labor-intensive sectors that, in addition, often rely on cheap labor, may find these new due diligence policies to be quite disruptive. I asked Jason to shed some light on this. Would you say that it's mandatory or is mandatory due diligence going to deliver significant progress on labor conditions? And what data do you use to assess working conditions?
2: Well, it's, it's hard because as I said at the top, private regulation, which, which rules the roost, companies setting their own standards, taking their own measure of things, is what we've, we've had for 30 years. So there's, there's, there's too little data available to us, to research centers like ours, and audits generate lots and lots of, of bad data. So for the lead firm, it's, it's intelligence that they need, not simply yeses or nos, ones and zeros, in an audit report. And getting high-quality intelligence about what's happening uh, to workers uh, and what's the nature of work in the places they're buying is going to require bigger investments, not not smaller ones, and and better-built partners. And importantly, for the the lead firm, sourcing. People in charge of the the decisions about price and uh, delivery, uh, production process, etc. The sourcing staff inside the firm have to be bound by the company's values which presumably include regard for labor rights and significant improvements in working conditions, or, or we just stop wondering why company X, uh, which talks about its, its profound commitment to workers issue Y, why are they still buying from places and importantly paying prices that make it clear that they don't really care about that issue, that that is not a value the company holds dear. And that's down to sourcing choices.
0: What are your thoughts or even recommendations for making due diligence work for all parties in this new landscape?
2: One of the elements is it has to go all the way to the end, and that seems to be embedded in, in the legislation in the European Union, meaning not just, not just a, a look at what's happening in, in tier one where the product finally comes together, but all the steps along the way. But important, too, to keep the focus on the, the lead firm and not... Not just the the upstream actors, who are often just responding to market conditions. If the price that's on offer for their product is below the cost of production, then they may engage in in bad practices. And we can blame the we can blame the supplier, who's just tra- trying to maintain a modest margin, or we can look at the lead firm and their their uh, their constant downward pressure on price. That's that's typically where the problem starts, and the the EU or, or regulators anywhere can't bear the burden of all this sussing out supply chains to the end and, and policing all the practices. So the burden will have to fall on on firms. And one of the questions that, that these regimes, these regulators will have to ask is uh, why the firms are buying in these places and uh, what is it we expect the firm to know about its supply chain and how are they solving problems? And if they're unable to solve problems, why are they, why are they still engaged in these places? And the requirement in the legislation that the lead firms are not just reporting on their due diligence effort, but in the end, have some share of legal liability for harms done to workers, that'll, that'll, that seems to me, that'll change the, the calculus inside the firms.
0: And finally, Jason, can you tell me how you see the future of work developing in the next few years and what you think policymakers need to do to stay up to date in developing legislation that reflects this continually changing landscape?
2: One thing they need to do is focus on these hard measures of outcomes. What's happening in workers' lives, at the plant level, at the farm level, and in the aggregate, in the supply chain of a lead firm. So measures of of labor outcomes, that's crucial. And the second is one that's coming fast. It's climate breakdown. The focus for, for these lead firms has to be twofold, not just mitigation efforts, but also adaptation so that workers in Bangladesh making garments for H&M and others, for example, are not working in 40 degrees Celsius temperatures inside uh, with humidity at 60, 70, 80% or wading through floodwaters and risking illness to get to work. That's going to be increasingly uh, an important part of due diligence.
0: If all this seems like a lot for business leaders to think about, there is a place to start. I spoke to Christy Hoffman, General Secretary of the Uni Global Union. So GRI has a number of labor-related topic standards, which will enable companies to publicly disclose their most significant impacts on workers and how they're managing those impacts. Christy, in a digital world where technology
3: substitutes more and more employees, what is the role of unions? Well, it's interesting because this question of technology substituting for employees, first of all, there are plenty of workers around. We haven't really seen a reduction in employment owing to technology. But beyond that, I think the main question I would say is that, and one that we're working on quite a bit at uni, is that unions are really more essential now than ever to negotiate around the impacts of technology. And this is where we're putting our focus, not to stop technology, but in fact, to be at the table to negotiate both health and safety protections, privacy, you know, reduction in the, the pressure to work harder that you see through some of the algorithmic management, and job security. And these are things that unions have negotiated around for decades in connection with technology. We can't forget that the UAW had a, lot, a big fight about the introduction of robotics into factories not to prevent the robotics from being introduced, but to make sure that the workers, the auto workers shared in some of the increased efficiencies from those technologies. So that's where we as service workers and more of the white collar workers who are more heavily affected now, that unions are really important in this discussion.
0: How do you address the issue of different treatment of employees
3: versus contractors
0: and subcontractors?
3: Contractors are a reality in many industries, and we at uni we represent many workers who are contractors cleaners, uh, security officers, call center workers. So our position is, you know, and of course I would mention the Bangladesh Accord, which really affects the contractors of the big garment brands the lead re- employer has the responsibility to make sure these workers, whoever employ them whether it's the, they are direct employees of the lead or, or subs, that they have access to freedom of association, that they have access to decent work. And I think that's really the key question we're getting at today is around due diligence and the supply and the value chain and make sure that the peak employer, I'll call it, I'll use that word, the peak employer, the one that really has the, the biggest um, economic stake, that they take responsibility.
0: Now, what are the existing regulatory gaps to protect workers who are not considered right, to be employees or, or who aren't full time? And how can regulations step up to address the current labor issues?
3: Well, I think the erosion of the employment relationship is really one of the most damaging trends for workers over the past decade and even beyond that. I mean, legislators everywhere, that's a gap. We need to close that gap and make sure that we end this bogus self-employment. That is just a farce that this many workers are self-employed. So that's important to me. It's a really critical thing that needs to happen. A lot of legislators are trying to close that gap everywhere. There is the other, you know, approach, which is to put in minimum standards for the self-employed. You know, I think that's important that everybody has the right to organize. It's still unclear to me who you organize with if you're technically not employed. And, you know, I think that is happening in many places. There's kind of groups and and minimum wages for for gig drivers, for example, in many cities. I think that those are um, you know at best you know partial steps, but we really need to get rid of this you know fake self employment. That I think is a critical fight that we have in Geneva, where I live. The Geneva courts have ruled that Uber is an employer, and many other courts around Europe have taken that position. And it is possible to do that.
0: Companies really need to stay on top of regulations and expectations in this changing landscape. I continued talking with Christy about corporate accountability. For large companies that have contractors and subcontractors and so on, new rules are a big game changer.
3: We have already seen significant progress when it comes to employers recognizing their responsibility from the point of view that they no longer put their head in the sands and say, that's not my problem, that's somebody's problem in Bangladesh or, and we used to say 10 years ago, big employers, multinationals would say, it's not my problem. What happens to my own direct employees in another country? That's the local management and they, whatever local rules are, that's what they follow. We don't hear that as much anymore. I think culturally there's been a big shift, accountability and actual legal responsibility for what happens in the case of those workers has to be improved upon. The uh, German due diligence law has a lot of promise for being enforceable. And I think the French was more about reporting. And reporting is not the whole story. And if that's all you have to do is report, that's not going to really change things. There has to be that you have to not only identify your risks, you have to remediate your risks. You have to, you know, solve the problems that have happened have taken place. So it's the full cycle of the U.N. guiding principles. It's not just conducting due diligence to know and show that you know where the problems are. You've got to really address those problems. So I think there's a lot of a lot of promise. We consider it to be a policy priority to push for mandatory due diligence. At the same time, you know, it could turn into a tick the box exercise and just a reporting exercise, if there's not enough very rigorous enforcement and the mechanisms that make that happen. So far, we have spoken a lot about inconsistencies
0: in how companies manage impact on their employees. But I also wondered what the good can look like when companies show their commitment to doing better. So let's say I've just woken up right to my new responsibilities. I'm a company and I realize that one of the members of my value chain is not respecting labor standards. What are my next steps?
3: They should, first of all, avoid multiple layers of subcontracting. They should avoid situations where they're engaged, you know, bringing on bogus self-employment, workers in bogus self-employment. They have to communicate very clearly to contractors what their expectations are and then follow up with credible inspections not audits in high-risk countries in particular. And so I think it's about, you know, communicating requirements, but also paying special attention uh, depending on the industry and the location.
0: So how should companies proactively handle the employment arrangements to avoid labor issues?
3: You know, lower pay is what motivates many companies to contract, but that's not the only reason. And if your commercial model is based on only seeking out the lowest pay, then that's not really a viable long-term model. Contracting out or using others in your supply chain, that's you know viable and sustainable. Where, you know, one, your contractor can provide some greater efficiency, but not necessarily based on a race to the bottom and you're just going to go to the cheapest. And And that's something that we have to turn around because, and we know that extremely low wages are also linked to violations of of labor standards, whether it's freedom of association, the right to organize, health and safety, uh, payment of wages, proper payments. So we want these practices to end in order to clean up our supply chains. Does that mean that wages go up? We hope so, because wages are too low in so many industries which really compete on wages. And when we look at the garment industry, for example, you know, you can just see that, you know, they, the companies will say, well, if you bump up your, you know, ex- your costs by a tiny bit in Bangladesh, we'll move to Cambodia or vice versa. I think the reality is it's not so easy to move everything around on, uh, you know, but but it is to some extent, there is this competition on, on wages, which we need to, um, you know, stop that trend. So, you know, i see some of the contractors that we represent, whether it's cleaners or call center workers in a market and wages are, you know, we need sectoral bargaining for wages in a lot of these industries. We have to take the wages out of competition, but have wages that are living wages that are respectable wages. And that's kind of our objective when we're looking at, um, you know, a labor market. We know that if we're organizing security guards, One company is not going to be 20% more expensive than all the others. We've got to lift the whole market.
0: Thanks to Christy for giving concrete guidance to companies. I also appreciate that Janine and Jason could spend more time with us on this topic. So it seems that whether you're navigating the landscape of remote or hybrid work or the more traditional models of working, there's a growing number of considerations from a labor point of view that still need to be made. Thank you for tuning in to Episode 3 of the SDG Insider. Join us again for more topics related to the global goals and be sure to click the subscribe button so that you don't miss any upcoming episodes. For more information on the Global Reporting Initiative, visit www.globalreporting.org. Until next time. This podcast is produced by Two Stories for the Global Reporting Initiative, written by Linda Scarborough, Produced by Carol Williams with audio editing, engineering, and sound design by Kozim Zmela and Jordan Tui. For more information on references used, please refer to the show notes.